You have queued up The Roulette Tapes, a program of adventurous music and conversation recorded at the New York City Concert Hall, Roulette. You can hear thousands of concert recordings from Roulette's past and present and find news of upcoming events celebrating innovation and imagination at roulette.org. Aren't you curious? Welcome to another edition of The Roulette Tapes. I'm Susan James. Today we listen to pianist and composer Myra Melford as she discusses her relationship to the piano, her work with harmonium and prepared piano, and the artists who helped to shape her work. We'll also listen to a sampling of Myra's live performances from the Roulette Archive. Here's Myra Melford. at the intersection of several different genres and styles from jazz, more progressive jazz, blues, experimental, new music, and various world music traditions that I've studied. And any given piece might reference two or three of those different styles that I guess I've synthesized over the years into, you know, kind of my own way of making music. ask you about your primary instrument, the piano. Tell me about your relationship with that instrument and when did it begin? It's, it's interesting. The older I get, the more I realize what, a, what an important instrument it is to me and how much love I have for it. But I started out playing the piano on my own when I was about three, I guess two or three, my parents had an upright piano in the house and my older siblings, who were quite a bit older, they were in junior high when I was born, um, were taking lessons on and it grew from there. My parents moved, I guess, when I was three and they moved to a bigger house and we were able to get a grand piano. And that was really the piano that I got started on and grew up with. It's just in recent years that I realize how special the connection I have with this instrument is, you know, to the point where sometimes I feel like it's just an extension of my own body.
You also have a couple of other things that you do on stage. Tell us about your work with Prepared Piano. I'm still doing that. I've been doing that for quite a while, and I probably started doing that. I, I imagine I even played somewhat prepared piano, or at least inside the piano on my very first concert at Roulette with Marion Brandes. So I started exploring that when I was in, playing in a duo with her very early on in New York. I think we started playing together in 84, 85, something like that. In the beginning, I, I tried very hard to integrate it into a performance situation where I might also play the keyboard. of interested in isolating it as almost like approaching it like a different instrument when I joined the faculty at UC Berkeley in 2004 and started developing a vocabulary of sounds, some of which are very discreet and very quiet on the inside of the piano, that I, I developed various ways of amplifying so that I could play them in different contexts or play them with instruments that were either electronic or amplified in some way. And have done a lot of work with then sampling those sounds and using them as the basis for other composed work. Now I'm back to doing a little bit of what I started with, which is like when I play, for instance, in a trio with Nicole Mitchell and Joelle Leandra, or with in a trio with Mia Masaoka and Zena Parkins, I go back and forth from the inside to the keyboard. And I don't worry about trying to get everybody to hear these very quiet sounds. I kind of save those for special situations. So I've kind of come full circle with the inside of the piano. I developed a, a bunch of different techniques with these very strong rare earth magnets. And I just get them in little discs I don't remember the exact dimension, but smaller than a dime in diameter and very strong. And I make little stacks of them and put them on different nodes of the harmonics on the piano. And then I very carefully get them vibrating. And it's a, like in a really beautiful, amazing sound. You have to be very careful because anything 
metallic attract the magnet so it could fall over or make unintentional sounds. But I've done a lot of interesting work with those and then amplifying those with humbuckers and things like that. And then the other thing that I love a lot, which I actually got from Mark Dresser, really Denman Maroney via Mark Dresser, which is this beautiful copper bar that bows really awesome harmonics on the inside of the piano. Also the harmonium, you know, that's an instrument that I thought I knew what it was, but I had to actually Google it. Tell us about the work with the harmonium. Well, the harmonium started, I think, in the mid-90s. Well, first of all, just for people who don't know what it is, it's a small pump organ. And the style that I play is the South Asian or Indian style, which means that instead of having foot pumps to pump the air, the bellows are on the side of this small box and you pump with one hand and play the keyboard with the other. And I got introduced to this a, a couple, through a couple different ways at the same time. I had just started practicing yoga and meditation and, you know, got into the whole chanting thing with harmoniums and started to play it. Then I got into studying Hindustani classical music from North India. And at the same time, an important mentor of mine, Henry Threadgill, had a band at the time called Make a Move with Tony Cedrus, who doubled accordion and harmonium. And I had been thinking about adding another keyboard and with a very different kind of sound to my setup, but wasn't really attracted to synthesizers or electronic keyboards. So I thought this might be a great second keyboard for me and, and uh, eventually went off to India on a Fulbright for a year and studied uh, with a harmonium, several harmonium masters, one in particular in Calcutta, who was one of the few people in India to play the harmonium as a solo instrument and not just as a, an accompaniment to singers and chanters. So that kind of got me going, you know, with the harmonium. And I still play it. It's not easy to travel with, so I don't take it on the road very much. I, most of the music I've written for it, I now play on the melodica, which is kind of cheating, unless I'm, you know, playing a concert at home. But it's still a sound I like a lot and um, am continuing to work with. Thank you. 
Next, I asked Myra about the musicians and composers who have guided her in her development as an artist. Well, I don't think I could limit it to just one person. There were several people who I think of as my mentors when I moved to New York. I, I primarily moved to New York so that I could study with various people that I had met as a college student in Olympia, Washington, when they came through town to perform. And that includes Leroy Jenkins, a violinist and composer. He was probably the first person I really, who taught me about everything. You know, I met him when he played in Olympia, as I said, and then when I first moved to New York in 1984, he was doing a, a series of workshops for young younger musicians out of a loft space on Broadway downtown. So, you know, I studied with him then, but we became very good friends and he started hiring me quite early on in my career to do recordings and, you know, work on music for plays and stuff. And then he hired me to teach his daughter piano. And eventually I went on to perform with him in an ensemble with Joseph Jarman. It was called Equal Interest. And I played with him right up until the end of his life in 2007. So, you know, that's the longest standing and probably deepest friendship and mentorship that I've had with someone. I remember an early thing he said to me in New York was, you know, I, I, I think I was just starting to play with Marion, so it still had to have been in the mid-80s. And I remember him saying, Myra, don't even think about leaving New York until you've been here at least 10 years. And I hadn't really been thinking about leaving New York, but I thought that was interesting that he he was like encouraging me to hang in there through whatever kind of meat grinder, tough times New York might uh, present. But he, he was just always full of great stories, great sense of humor and just a wonderful man. So I miss him so much. who stand out, I would say. Early on, I took piano lessons with two amazing pianists. The first was Jackie Byard, and the second was Don Pullen, two of Mingus's greatest pianists. Both of them were just incredibly encouraging. Those I, I studied with Jackie early, like in the mid-80s, and then with Don in the late 80s. I think with both of them, you know, they these were pianists who had the ability to play totally in the pocket and great, you know, just play, you know, more straight head jazz with a, just a great feel. And at the same time had developed their own way of, you know, going outside of the conventions of jazz. 
In both of them, I felt like I had met kindred spirits who were doing what it was that I kind of envisioned for myself, which was to find my own way of playing the piano that incorporated the styles and the musics that were inspiring to me. And I think the greatest thing I got from both of them was just the encouragement to keep going at a time when I was, you know, young and not quite sure about what I was doing. And then Henry Threadgill is probably the fourth and most important. As a composition teacher, I still go back to what I learned from him about composing and use it all the time and love to stay up on his current music and what he's doing. And anyway, those are probably the four most important. said those four were the most important. There was one more, and this was someone whose ensemble I got to be in for 10 or 11 years, and that was Butch Morris. Not only did I learn a tremendous amount from him, but also there was this great balance of rigor and freedom in working with Butch. You know, just such an incredible and deep musicality that I loved, I loved playing with him. I mean, I started out when he was still doing a lot more compositions, but was with him through that transition to the conductions. And then the other thing I would say is that, you know, getting to perform Henry's music um, was very important, uh, you know, because he was so influential as a, as a composition teacher for me. There is a, a line in your biography on your website that I loved. It was about blurring the lines between composition and improvisation. Tell me about that. I don't know where that idea came from, but it's certainly something I've been really interested in doing, at least since the late 80s. But I think it was just in the air in those days. You know, like I think to a large extent, that's what Butch was doing. And uh, Henry and various other people, you know, various other members of the AACM and so on. So, yeah, I mean, I think my particular approach was also really influenced by the philosophy and practices of Frank Lloyd Wright, whose philosophy was, you know, that the house or the building grew naturally out of the site. So you didn't get the sense that it was just this box imposed there but that it actually grew out of the environment was certainly was his ideal. And he wanted to have the inside, what was outside the house and inside very fluid. So he might pave an inside room with the same stones that he had on a patio with big glass doors. So you had this sense that the inside, the interior was merging with the exterior. And it was ideas like that that really, really inspired me to try to make music like that, where you couldn't tell where the structure or the pre-composed material 
began or ended and where the improvisational part of the composition took over. You know, going back to that very first concert with Marion Brandis in 1985, I mean, Roulette was one of the first places that gave me a platform to share my music in New York. Not only that, but it was presenting music by all these people who I admired and, you know, wanted to learn more about and loved to go listen to. So that, that continues to this day. I mean, even ever since I've been based in Berkeley, California, I still have supported Roulette the best that I can and gone back uh, periodically to perform there. And it remains, I think, probably the most important venue for me in terms of history and the mission. And I just have so much admiration for Jim Staley and everybody who's works there, David. Weinstein and, you know, everyone who's contributed to the longevity of this place. But um, I think some of my favorite concerts include a solo concert that I did. I had only been in Berkeley for about a year or a year and a half. It meant so much to me that Jim reached out to me and invited me to come back and play a solo concert at Roulette after I had moved to California. And I just remember that being a, a lot of fun. It just felt like a real homecoming for me. Another really important and special event that springs to mind is I was invited to work on an opera that Leroy Jenkins had been working on when he died with Mary Griffin, the librettist. I was invited to workshop all of that material and perform it at Roulette. It meant so much to me to be involved in continuing Leroy's legacy. That was probably like in 2012, I'm thinking. And then getting to present Snowy Egret at Roulette 
as I was developing the music for this big multimedia piece that we eventually premiered in San Francisco. Um, it's called Language of Dreams. And Jim provided the space for me to do several days of workshop and rehearsal. But I'm sure there are many more that I'm forgetting. Roulette Tapes is a production of Roulette Intermedium. This project is supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts. Our executive producer is David Weinstein. I'm Susan James. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to the Roulette Tapes, a program of adventurous music and conversation. This series is produced by Roulette Intermedium. You can find thousands of concert recordings from Roulette's archives and news of upcoming events at roulette.org.